It's rare that something has the potential to help both our bodies and the planet at the same time. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about Oobly and sweet proteins. Did you know that protein has a sweet tooth? That's right. There are a handful of plants that grow near the equator that make fruit that produce sweet-tasting plant protein that's not sugar. These are called sweet proteins. Sweet proteins are amazing tricksters and taste absolutely delicious. But better yet, they're digested just like any other dietary protein. That means they have no impact on blood sugar or the gut microbiome. Oobly uses sweet proteins to make incredible plant-based, low-sugar, sweet iced teas that are craft-brewed with clean, fresh ingredients and zero artificial sweeteners. No stevia, no sugar alcohols. With only 7 grams of sugar in an entire 16-ounce can, and that includes the fruit, you can have your sweet and sip it too. Oobly's sweet teas come in three delicious flavors, lemon, peach, and mango yuzu. Get 20% off your first order with the promo code GENIUS at oobly.com. G-E-N-I-U-S. That's the promo code at oobly.com. O-O-B-L-I dot com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% a real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Professor William Jaynes. He's a professor of education at California State University in Long Beach. Professor James has written for both the White for the White House for both the George W. Bush and Obama administrations. He's spoken for the White House, the U.S. Department of Justice, U.S. Department of Education, Department of Health and Human Services, the National Press Club, UN delegates, and um, many many other high level organizations. So I get to talk to him today. I'm very happy to do so. Uh, welcome, William. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a joy to talk with you. Yeah, uh, I have the topic Christianity in education and uh, perhaps uh, religion in general in education. But before we get into that, tell me a bit about uh, your background. When you say that you've um, spoken for uh, the White House and all these organizations, what was your role and what kind of uh, things did you do for them? Well, basically, I was asked by various uh, countries to come in and advise. It might have been on educational issues, economic issues. I helped out the South Korean government during the Asian economic crisis of 98 and 99, because I do have quite a bit of uh, economic background. And and uh, during uh, George W. Bush's uh, State of the Union, he said that he was going to hold a uh, gathering, a White House gathering on improving uh, educational outcomes, especially for the poor and people of color, and I was humbled to be invited to be one of the speakers for that and various things for related things for the Department of Justice, Department of Education, Health and Human Services, and so forth. Hmm. What was it like to speak for these organizations? Like, Were you able to meet former President Bush and, and Obama, or yes. like they called you in and... You know, like what was the experience like? Yes, very wonderful experience, humbling experience. Uh, both President Bush and uh, President Obama are very charismatic individuals. You can see when you get to talk with them that they're the type of people you would want to vote into office. President Bush, he was he was rather cute, you might say. First of all, he asked. 
he uh, said to me, we're so thankful that you came from so far. And uh, I was thinking, hey, I'm, I'm just so thankful to be invited. And then he did something. We, we talked for a while and then he did something that I will never forget. He took his uh, hand and he put it on my belly and rubbed it. And he said, how do you stay in such great shape? <laughs> But the funny thing is, and I told him, you know, I jogged and all that. I'm, you know, really into jogging. And of course, he likes to jog as well. But you never forget something like that. In fact, two things. If ever someone says I'm getting a little bit pudgy, I can always say, well, then you have a disagreement with the former president of the United States, number one. And number two, it's funny how it really does give you incentive to stay in shape because you don't want to disappoint the former president of the United States. And mm. then with President Obama, you probably heard that television tends to add about eight to 10 pounds to your actual weight just because of the shape of the screen. It makes you look wider. And so I was surprised just how thin President Obama really is. But he has this electric smile. In fact, you probably remember when you were a child watching cartoons and some people would smile or laugh to such a degree that the lips went beyond the face. <laughs> and he has an electric uh -huh. smile that is so wide and so contagious, I would say, that it's almost like that. And both very, very kind people, kind to me, and very, very open. I remember I was asked to give a series. I actually spoke for President Obama, I think, about eight times. And one of them, it was a special gathering and big picture of yours truly. I didn't deserve it. It's very, very humbling. But the Department, U.S. Uh, Secretary of Education King told me all that you've said, we are going to put into practice. We love the various speeches that you gave, and we're going to CC you as this proceeds through the Department of Education, your recommendations. And you know what? He kept his word. And that means a lot to me whenever someone keeps his word. Yeah, uh, it's excellent. Um, so some of the things you spoke about, have you been able to see them come into to fruition, to use? Or is it just a long process where it may happen, but it, it'll take a while? Well, both. We, we have worked on a, a number of bills over the years and a, a number of policies. But of course, the challenge is we have this pendulum effect in the United States that often when one political party comes into office, they implement your recommendations and then the next <laughs> the next president might not go quite that far, might even cancel some of the things that were put into place. But, you know, that's part of politics. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, I really try to have a good relationship with both Republicans and Democrats. It's kind of sad because uh, years ago when I started doing this, I would say there was about a 25% overlap between the number of people who would be invited by both Republicans and Democrats, meaning academics and others. It was about a 25% overlap between the speakers 
who would speak for Democrats and Republicans both. And now I would say that's down to about 1%, which is really, really sad because I think just about every American, whatever their political flavor, at the end of the day, they want the political parties to come together on certain key issues. And when that doesn't happen, it only harms the country. And so I guess I'm one of the few that I have a good relationship with both political parties and do believe there are certain issues that we can develop a consensus that, hey, this is good for the country. No ifs, ands, and buts about that. I have a friend from Ghana, and he said anytime a new president comes in, they take down everything that was done before, including buildings. And it's just foolish. Because yes. you're shooting yourself in the foot, you are going backwards. And it's, I totally agree. Nothing gets done. It's yes. you know you get a little bit of progress and it's all undone. It, it's foolish. It seems like uh, unfortunately, I guess the U.S. is heading more in that direction, and it doesn't help anyone. It may help the ego of the politician, you know, for a short period of time, or help them get elected, but it hurts the country and it contradicts their oath that they're supposed to help the country and work for the country instead of just for themselves. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, uh, I do a lot of speaking and some advising uh, overseas as well. And years ago, one of the things I heard from foreign diplomats and so forth was they thought one of the reasons why the United States overall worked so well, and we're talking 1980s, 1990s, so it was quite some time ago, is they said, okay, one political party comes into office and they propose a piece of legislation. And then the members of the other party basically say, well, okay, but here are some suggestions about how to improve it. And then the final result is better than the initial proposal. And they said, that's the way the United States works. Remember, this is 1980s and 1990s. And you know what? I agreed with them. But unfortunately, I wouldn't say we're quite like Ghana yet, but it's it's saddening that we're beginning to look more and more like Ghana as you describe it. We all know we should be eating less sugar, but we're constantly bombarded with drinks and snacks loaded with refined sugar or alternative sweeteners like stevia or erythritol that recent studies have shown might not be as harmless as we thought. Enter Ubli, who just launched the world's first beverages to satisfy your sweet tooth with protein. Sweet proteins are nature's candy and give Oobly's brand new sweet iced teas sugar-like sweetness without the impact to your health. Get 20% off your Oobly order with the promo code GENIUS at Oobly.com and try all three delicious craft-brewed sweet iced teas, lemon, peach, and mango yuzu. That's Oobly.com, O-O-B-L-I.com, and use the code GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. Well, going back to the um, the topic that you put forth in your bio. Have you been able to speak on religion and education? And is that an issue anymore? It appears that religion has been driven out of you know public education. But what do you see and what do you want to talk about in regards to this issue? Well, I think it, what you say is true in, in some respects, but I think what is happening, and I think it's in a sense encouraging, but it, it's sad that it would have to come to this is more and more we have some major social problems in this country that I think just about every American is recognizing. We have a, just an unbelievable regularity of these school shootings that before the 1960s would occur about once every 20 years, and now they're occurring every week, seemingly, on average, or and in many cases, more than once a week. In fact, I had a conversation with my wife 
oh, several weeks ago. And uh, she said, oh, did you hear about the school shooting? And I said, well, which one? Yesterday's or today's? I never thought I would say that to my wife. And CNN did a very interesting study. Now, my focus is school shootings. In fact, I I wrote a book on that particular issue. And so there are shootings, obviously, that go beyond the schoolroom. But CNN did a study examining not just school shootings, but mass shootings in the United States, of which a, a large portion, of course, were in the schools. And they, they wanted to see, were there any patterns? And so some analysts took the studies that uh, CNN examined. I think there were 27 uh, shootings that CNN regarded as the worst that had happened in American history. And they defined the worst by the number of people who died. And other analysts took a look at it, and they discovered that in 26 of those 27, that the shooter either came from a broken family or a dysfunctional family. Now, obviously, there are a lot of factors that go into, you know, what causes the shooting and and so forth. In fact, uh, in the book I wrote, I advocated a comprehensive approach to this problem. But it's hard to dismiss that as coincidence that if you have children who are raised in some challenging situations, they're they're more likely to become angry and so forth. You also have the vast number of drug overdoses now that is in the last year or two, according to the Census Bureau, has killed more than 100,000 Americans. Now that compares, say, to 1980, where you had about 6,000 die from drug overdoses, and people found that shocking back then. And then that increased to, by 1999, to about 27,000. But wow, hundred and six to 109,000 Americans dying from uh, drug overdoses, uh, overwhelmingly from opioids these days. And I think people are beginning to wake up to the fact that perhaps we have paid a price for dismissing faith and a sense of purpose in life. And I think this is one of the big advantages that faith gives and Christianity gives that people can have hope and hang in there. I did an interview with CNN back in January of uh, 2020, and uh, because I uh, the prayer guidelines that for the schools that Trump signed into effect. Actually, a colleague of mine and I were the ones who approached the Trump administration and said, will you do this? Because we need to stop viewing our students across the country as merely minds. They're also spiritual beings. And prayer can give hope. Prayer can give purpose. And my colleague and I, over about six to eight hours of coffee, (laughs) We wrote we wrote the first draft of those guidelines and, of course, submitted them to the Trump administration, where they did make some changes, but more or less they were what we recommended. So it was very, very rewarding to see that. But there are a lot of kids, as I was sharing in the CNN interview, there are just a lot of kids essentially without hope. Where are they going to go in life? In fact, that's how I started really as an academic. I mean, not immediately, but I think the seeds were sown that I was raised in a really rough area of New York. And I saw 
all these people who were suffering like like me. Now, in, uh, in my case, my family was below the poverty line, single parent. I was an only child. And but this started as I looked around me and New York was one of the first cities to become really diverse. So I lived in an area, too, where 75 percent of the students were students of color. And I saw some of these challenges that students faced. And I was an atheist, by the way. I was raised an atheist. And I I looked at some of the students who were facing some of the same circumstances as I was, and yet they were able to prevail. And I asked why. And I came to a very humbling conclusion that the main two factors that helped them, number one, they tended to be students of faith. They tended to go to church and their parents went to church. And then secondly, to quote Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who uh, is a sociologist who used to be at Cornell before he retired and passed on. uh, He said what each child needs is at least one parent who's crazy about them. And that's that that's a quote that's using his language. And so I came to the conclusion that, wow, atheist or not, I have to admit that these students who are succeeding have something that I don't. They're people of faith, and I'm an atheist. And secondly, they have support at home, and I don't. And that's largely how I began to go on this trajectory, whether I realized it or not at the time. And I think I was almost destined to become an academic because the seeds were sown at that point. And I did a little study. Okay, let's let's take a sample of 60 students. (laughs) I didn't call it a sample, but in essence, that's what was going on. And I thought, okay, who are the successful ones? And then who are the ones like me who are really struggling and and being left behind? Well, so I guess a couple of questions here. So you worked with the Trump administration. It seems like anyone that wants to work with, you know, anything related to Trump, people are like, ah, you're the devil, I'm screaming and yelling. How did you navigate that? Because you worked for many administrations, including no. the Trump administration in part, or at least spoke to right. them. Did no, that is. Back? Were you able to navigate that? Right. No, that is a very valid point. In fact, I remember one member of the uh, Obama administration said this to me, and it really reflects who we are. Remember the Obama administration, who I'll, I'll keep anonymous at, at this point, I think they would appre- the person would appreciate that, said to me, uh, you know what amazes me the most about you? And again, this is pretty much a word for word quote. You know what most amazes me about you? And I said, no, I don't. And they said, the person said, everyone trusts you, even people who hate one another. The Democrats trust you, the Republicans. And of course, this was a different era, of course, because or at least a somewhat different era because Obama was president. It wasn't the current situation in Ukraine. But this person added the Chinese trust you, the English trust you, the Russians, the EU, the UN. And I wondered how you ever pulled that off. But now I know I know what your emphasis is. And I said, well, what is our emphasis? And this member of the Obama administration said, you don't try to impress people intellectually. What you do is love on them. You know how to treat people and people aren't used to that. So then when you get up to speak, people are just naturally inclined to receive whatever you have to say. And I'm a strong believer. Yes, it is true. I have worked with 
more than one administration that I didn't particularly agree with. But again, a lot of these issues, I think many people agree on. And I try to emphasize the areas where I see consensus and then go as far as I can. And then as as long as they allow me to speak forth truth, at least as as it appears to me, and as it appears, of course, in, in the Bible or or other similar texts, I go for it. And I'm not one of these people. I mean, I know people, for example. In fact, I have a, a neighbor who is, uh, we have various neighbors. Some are very much into the Democrats, some very much into the Republicans. And uh, I ran into this one fellow who normally, if Biden opens his mouth, he's against it. And I was rather encouraged that he agreed with how Biden was handling the Ukraine. And there are other people that, oh my goodness, as soon as Trump opens his mouth, doesn't matter what he says, they're against it. And I'm not like that. Uh, Yes, it's true. There are some presidents that the majority, maybe even the vast majority of what they say, or at least even their approach to dealing with people, I disagree with. But nevertheless, I find areas of agreement. I'm not of the view that everything Biden says or everything Trump says is bad just because that person said it. Because I remember uh, living in the Midwest for a while in, in Chicago, and I forget the radio host, but oh, he was fascinating because what he would do is he would quote someone. He wouldn't tell you who it was, but he would quote someone and say, agree or disagree. And what was funny is he would quote Democrat who would say a Republican-like thing and people would call up and it would sound like, again, this is years ago, so Dan Quayle was the uh, vice president at the time. And he would say something that sounded so quailish, if you will. Now, I know that word doesn't exist, (laughs) but I think it communicates what I'm saying. Very, very quailish. And then the person would say, oh, Quail says those things all the time. He's out of his mind. And then the host would say, well, actually, it was uh, former President Bill Clinton who said that. And then he would do the reverse as well. He would quote something that sounded like it was so democratic in nature, but it would have been said by a Republican. So I focus on where there is consensus and I try to communicate to people that, look, this is good for every American. You can't be against this. But yes, I have worked for administrations that I don't particularly agree with on on most issues. And quite frankly, I think there needs to be more of that in order to develop more of a unity in this country. All right. For um, religion, are you a person of faith? And if so, are you open about it with everyone that you do, uh, you know, working and speaking and consulting with? Then I just want to ask you more questions about that, if it's okay. Sure. I'm a person of faith. As I shared before, I was raised an atheist, a very avid atheist. Uh, I would try to, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I would try to convert people to atheism. And uh, it was largely because both my parents were atheists and I had a very difficult childhood and I was very bitter. I was very angry. And then also, quite frankly, I didn't know many people of faith. So I had all these stereotypes 
And I guess I could easily be called, at least at that time, an anti-religious bigot. And then I, I won't go into my testimony specifically, but in a series uh, of experiences, I realized, wow, uh, Christians in particular have some terrible PR. <laughs> that Now that I've met them, they are not at all uh, what they are portrayed to be. So yes, I became a Christian. And virtually everyone knows that I am a Christian. And in fact, kind of interesting because I'm also half Jewish and it's my mother's uh, side that is Jewish. And in the eyes of uh, Jewish people, Israel, etc., I'm Jewish because if your mom is Jewish, they regard you as such. So we took a trip one time, my wife and I, to uh, Israel. And it was funny because once the tour guide found out I was Jewish, he started to share with me, hey, you could be buried in Israel. I can, <laughs> I can hook you up with the right people and make it happen. So it's interesting because almost everyone knows that I'm a Christian that knows a you know, anything about me, uh, but they may or may not know that my mother is is Jewish. And uh, I've been quizzed by uh, Jewish reporters saying, now, wait a minute, you're, you're Christian and you're Jewish? And then I explained to them, well, actually, I view my faith as, as very consistent with my Jewish roots. And as long as I explain it in that way, I don't come against them. I think it's a continuation of my Jewish roots, the beautiful thing is that they receive it quite well. And I think this also speaks a lot to the importance of interacting with each other in a loving way. I mean, one of the areas that I'm very much affected in terms of being a Christian is the theme of the Bible is love. God is love. Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son and I think that we need to get back to this four-letter word. It's sad in academics many times that uh, I have many colleagues across the country and around the world who would rather hear other four-letter words that are profane than hear the word love. A lot of academics just think that's ooh, that's not intellectual. But I think we, we need a whole lot more of that in our interactions with one another and if we did, we wouldn't have so many of the problems that we have. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, you know, when COVID started and all that, and we saw this relentless barrage of uh, here's what you should do from everywhere, news media, businesses and all that. I imagined, you know, what if we had a relentless barrage of uh, here's the Ten Commandments, follow them. And it was just propagandized everywhere all the time by news and by government and by everything. I wonder how uh, things would be if that, if, if that was done. I know it'll never happen, unfortunately, but uh, I just thought it'd be an interesting thought experiment. No, I, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I just, I think that because so many people were concerned and so many people weren't even so much concerned for their own health, but especially people in their household, if they were vulnerable health-wise to COVID for various reasons, or if there were elderly in their home. I mean, so many different people had different circumstances. And then that's very different from a family who lives 
way off to themselves on a farm. And uh, people were concerned for a variety of very good reasons. And it just would have been nice rather than people on both sides of the issue judging each other. Oh, why do you wear a mask? Or why don't you wear a mask or what have you? Or why are you getting vaccinated? Or why are you not getting vaccinated? When talking with these individuals regarding their own personal situations, a lot of them had very good reasons if you got to know them. And it just would have been nice had love ruled the day, if you will, that we had a national conversation about what everyone was going through, as opposed to, well, if you don't do this or if you don't do that, you're not worth a whole lot. And it was just very sad to see. So I don't know, do you think that any form of uh, religious observance is coming back to to school, public school or any other school, or what, what do you see? Yes, to some extent. There, again, we have the, the guidelines regarding, uh, regarding prayer. Also, Bill Clinton uh, made a speech in Vienna, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. He made a speech in 1995 that I think helped quite a bit. And you can see, you know, I'm referring to presidents on both sides of the aisle. So I think they, you know, they they both played a part in these issues. And Bill Clinton made a speech that, look, the U.S. Supreme Court decisions of the 1960s, three of them, that gave some instructions regarding the uh, reading of the Bible and prayer They've been taken out of context. They were not meant to communicate to youngsters that they are to leave their faith at the front door of the school. And so he put together some guidelines to give teachers an awareness of what was permissible and what was not. For example, just as you mentioned, we really have this trajectory in, in many areas of the country away from religion, but even the U.S. Supreme Court in Abington versus Shemp, one of those three main decisions that they made in the 1960s, they said, look, there should be the study of the Bible, but they said as long as it is shared objectively and as part of a secular curriculum, meaning they were basically saying, look, the Bible is the most published book in the history of humanity. Many of the great writers Steinbeck, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Dickens, and on down the line, they assume that the reader has a working knowledge of the Bible. Shakespeare quoted the Bible 1,300 times, just Shakespeare alone, and rough enough to wrestle with Old English. <laughs> but if you don't know Old English and you don't know the Bible, you're going to struggle. So as long as it is done objectively and as part of a secular curriculum, Bill Clinton gave that speech and gave guidelines out of the Department of Education that that's acceptable. And he also advocated a stance of non-discrimination against people of faith, meaning perhaps the most utilized assignment in the schools, at least early in the school year, as many teachers across the country will say, write about a hero in your life. And that's been done for, for decades. But what was happening, even during the Clinton administration, is if someone said, hey, I, I, I want to write about Jesus, or I want to write about Moses, or, or Paul, or some other religious figure, Many teachers would respond saying, well, you can write about 
a non-religious figure, but you can't write about a religious figure. Well, Bill Clinton said that's discrimination. You can't say you can write about anyone except religious figures, because if you allow atheists, but you don't allow religious figures to be included, that's discrimination. I mean, you don't have to be a person of faith, whether it be a Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish person, whatever. You don't have to be a person of faith to say, wait a minute, that's just not fair to allow students to write about atheists and agnostics, but not about people of faith. So I think there's there's an awareness, especially with these social issues coming up, because it saddens me, for example, that again, between 106,000 to 109,000 of our, well, it's mostly 18 to 45-year-olds. It's the leading cause of death for the group between 18 and 45 in this country now, drug overdose. I mean, that's unbelievable. We need more compassion towards this issue. We need a whole lot more love, a whole lot more compassion And I think people are beginning to realize that many of the teachings of faith we desperately need in this country. Yeah, no, it makes sense. You outlined what we need. Do you see any progress towards it? Do you see anyone in the current administration having um, any desire to implement any of this in schools? Or what do you think is going to happen, let's say, over the next five years with uh, religion and schools? Do you think it's going to creep in, be further forced out? demonized? What do you see? Probably a little bit of both. I hate to give you (laughs) such a seemingly contradictory answer, and it may seem, you know, antithetical to what one group or another might want to hear. I think a lot of these efforts are local uh, or at the state level. For example, uh, Louisiana just became the 14th or is about to become the 14th state to bring the Bible as literature course into the schools statewide. Uh, It also exists district by district in 45 different states, excuse me, 45 different states and various uh, districts in those states. 25 uh, states have brought in prayer in the schools, so that is happening. Also, school choice, uh, largely as a result of the U.S. Supreme Court decision in June of last year. In fact, I was asked to submit uh, an amicus brief for that, and I did so. And for those not familiar with that terminology, that's just legalese uh, addressing the fact that the Supreme Court doesn't have time to hear all the oral arguments. So what is often asked for is written arguments, maybe 40 or 60 double-spaced pages in length, and so I, I was a part of that. I think it's, it's good if our uh, children uh, have more choice in schooling and that the ability to go to private, in this case, uh, religious schools I'm mostly concerned about, that should not be limited just to the elite. I mean, President Obama was kind of funny in this way. He really spoke strongly against private schools, but then he sent his own kids <laughs> to private schools. And he's not the only one. So many do that. And so I think there are some trends in that direction. But on the other hand, there are a lot of people who are antagonistic towards faith. Some, I mean, I can relate to this because a lot of these people are most strongly against faith. And I think don't look at uh, this issue objectively. That was me. Okay. That's who I was. 
before the age of 18. So I get it. I, you know, I was raised in an atheistic home and so forth. So you have that. But here again, I think the importance, uh, one thing I can say to the faith community is that it is important to introduce these topics objectively. It is important to introduce these topics in love, because I think many times, uh, if we don't, then guess what? We're, we're going to get pushback, not even necessarily because of uh, faith beliefs, but because we are not coming forward in the right spirit. And I think that we really need this across the country, and yes, in Washington, D.C. As, as well. I mean, it's sad when some of our politicians compare the other side to Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin and then approach them a few days later and ask, will you co-sponsor a given bill with me? Well, of course not. If you've just compared them to Hitler or Stalin, no wonder there's such divisiveness. And we just need a whole lot more kindness, respect, and love. Okay. Very good. Makes sense. So do you have any events or speaking engagements or writing coming up that you're able to disclose that uh, you think would be of interest? Have you been asked to work with any committees or organizations that are uh, working to you know, reestablish a link between school and, and faith? Well, I think one, it's an article actually that's already out that is being cited much more than I expected. I'm, I'm thankful that my articles do tend to be highly cited. And uh, one article that quite, again, it's already published, but it's been cited quite a bit and I find it encouraging. It, it's on character education. And that isn't faith per se. And by the way, nor should it be in terms of how it is introduced into the schools. But one of the things that happened when the Supreme Court made their decisions in 62 and 63 regarding religion in the schools at that time, character education as it was taught, was really Judeo-Christian in nature, if you will, because uh, if you put those two faiths together, that was the, the overwhelming percentage of the people in this country. But when the Supreme Court made those decisions, they did not mean that, hey, you don't teach about love, you don't teach about forgiveness. But what happened at the school level is a lot of times all it would take is one parent to say, oh, oh, you're teaching about love, that's Christianity. And the schools would just say, no, that's not what's going on. But you know what? Rather than fight it, let's just remove teaching about love or forgiveness out of the schools. And so, nevertheless, the overwhelming percentage of Americans believe that qualities such as honesty, sincerity should be taught in the public schools. I mean, you're talking about between 97 to 99 percent of parents believe these qualities, certain central qualities that everyone's agreed on, that, you know, it's not a matter of, of faith. It's just a matter of, hey, unless you're a sociopath, love is a good thing. People realize that honesty is a good thing. Responsibility is a good thing. So I think people are responding to that and people uh, might want to take a look at, uh, it's a meta-analysis. And if people in the listening audience are not familiar with what a meta-analysis is, don't be concerned. You're in the majority. Okay. So let me explain what it is. You take all of the studies that have ever been done on a particular issue and you combine them statistically to see what the overall body of research indicates. And in this meta-analysis that I did on character education, 
people who are students who are taught character, guess what? Their achievement is higher. Their behavior across a number of measures is improved. And I think that's something that people are are hungry for. And it doesn't involve faith, but of course, the genesis of this idea, if you will, comes from uh, an understanding as a Christian that guess what? Love is a good thing. Respect is a good thing. So I yes, I do have some books coming up, but I think that particular article would be of interest to people. Hmm. Well, very good. Uh, where can people go? You know, you, you just partially answered the question, but where can people go to learn more about what you have to say and think? So that article you mentioned is, is one. Again, where else can people go to find out more about what's on your mind? Sure. Basically, uh, first of all, they, they just type in my name, even my last name. They just type in J-E-Y-N as in Nancy E-S. And my name will be up there a lot, give you uh, an overview of, of what I do and the advising and so forth. My books are kind of all over the place on Amazon.com and other other locales. I have 17 of them. And articles, probably the best way to find them is to put in my name on uh, Google Scholar, and you'll see a, you know, a long list of the articles that I've written. And people can peruse those things and then come to conclusions about what most interests them. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being open and willing to listen to both sides of the aisle. And I, I think I see why uh, people are surprised that you seem to be uh, someone that everyone gets along with. But uh, that's a good thing. We need more people like that that are, that are balanced and not way on one side or the other. So again, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're an excellent interviewer. Thank you. Remember, if you're looking for groundbreaking low sugar products, head over to oobly.com and try the world's first iced teas made with sweet proteins, the future of sweet because we all deserve to feel good about healthy sweetness. Use the promo code GENIUS at oobly.com and get 20% off their lemon, peach, or mango yuzu sweet iced teas. Oobly is sweet without sacrifice. Website is oobli.com. Promo code GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.